So you're telling me we can see a matchup with Savali and Tyon with rain in the forecast and they're allowed to play it and Cleveland wins. You're listening to the Selfie is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Subscribe to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable. I mean, come on. Am I a jerk for thinking about the Yankees, how they were massaging their way to getting that rain out last year for Game 5? That's all I could picture in my head as we were waiting for that rain delay in Chicago. I love how we run our jokes by each other first before sending them out to the public. Even if the other person isn't a fan, we still seem to just go along with it. Just keep tweeting through it. That's the... Hey, in some <laughs> some cases, we encourage it, right? I sent you a similar text and you said save it for the Discord. So I did literally save it for the Discord. Go get into the Discord, by the way. How do you do that? Patreon.com slash Selby is Godcast where you get... One additional episode per week and access to the Discord, which may be the most fun place to watch a Guardians game in companion with actually watching the game. But I did. I shared it with the Discord. And how did that go over? I got a couple of uh, laughy faces, reactions. It's all I'm really after. Yeah. It's better than being rate exceeded on Twitter, am I right? <laughs> remember, remember when you used to watch a game and you just watch it? And then it would be a commercial and maybe you'd flip the channel. But things were so much simpler back in my day when I didn't. Because believe me, like I, one of my favorite parts of watching a big event like the Super Bowl or the last dance when no one had anything else to do is just scrolling social media and you feel like you are watching it with all these other people. There is like this digital community. So that's what the Discord is, I guess. Right? Yeah. And I think the good part of being in the Discord, boy, this just became a commercial for come join us at Patreon if if I've ever seen one, is that you can blast out your reactions without necessarily having to broadcast them to everybody on Twitter. Do I want every single thought that comes through my brain to be out on social media, to be captured and put on freezing cold takes three years from now? No, I don't. I really don't want that. So if I'm going to put it out to someone, I want it to be our... 500 closest friends in the Discord. That's kind of what I want. Those people know you. They trust you. Should they, though? You trust them. Should I? (laughs) Well, you know, I also trust Emmanuel Classe to be able to hold a lead, be it one run or in some cases four, five runs. I don't know. And uh, that's been called into question just as he makes the all-star team. And we, we saw... The Meisel Jinx in full effect this weekend, baby, because you're writing about how Jose never strikes out. He strikes out more than he's ever struck out in his career, it seems. Maybe not, but it kind of felt like that. And then Emmanuel Classe, you're writing about Classe, and he has one of his most epic meltdowns. We could talk about why that happened and how much of that was his fault, but dude, use your powers for good, I beg you. <laughs> it's uncanny at this point. It, it's It's... <laughs> One of the toughest parts about this job is you're writing ahead, right? I'm providing analysis. I'm writing features, whatever. And those things take time. So you can't just whip it up in an instant and react to every single thing. And with baseball, you're looking at trends. You're looking at things that take several weeks to draw conclusions about. And with Class A, I had written about how to the coaching staff, the front office analysts, they all said to each other in early May, this isn't the same guy. And they were. it was tough to put your finger on. And sure, the velocity was down a little bit, but as Terry Francona and others have said, you know, when you're throwing 98 instead of 100, 98 can still be effective. His pitches move a ton, right? So they're trying to figure out exactly what they can tweak to make his command better so he can start attacking the zone and not worry about leaving a pitch over the plate. And in doing so, miss more bats, boost the strikeout rate, 
he's been prone to weak contact and ground balls and with limited shifting, you can't, you know, that can hurt you a little more. And so he went through some delivery tweaks. They shortened his arm action a little bit. They fixed his release point. They helped with his timing. The pitch clock had been bothering him. He mentioned that again yesterday pregame, just talking about his early season struggles. They did all this stuff, and then you start seeing the velocity creep back up, and he's throwing some 100, 101 again. And then you see him kind of going through it a little bit. You see them pitch him maybe on some days where you raise your eyebrow and say, hmm, why are they using him here? Stop using him so much. But he needed reps to use these new mechanics and to really get in sync. And then he rattled off 13 consecutive appearances without giving up a run and was striking out more guys. And opponent's OPS in that stretch was 291. And you're you're thinking, all right, this is the guy we remember. And I had this story ready to go last week. And they win a game 14-1. to And I'm like, you know what? I don't know that anyone's going to be talking about Emmanuel Classe in the morning because they're going to be talking about Bo Naylor. They're going to be talking about Jose Ramirez. They're going to be talking about Matt Gherkin from Toledo and his new Ford Bronco. And <laughs> it just didn't quite feel like the right day to run that story. So I told my editor, Let, let's wait a day. And we waited a day. And then the next day he blew the save in the 10th inning. So... Then it's not that, you know, it's not always going to be perfect, but you want to at least time it up so it doesn't just look stupid, right? So I'm not going to say, Class A is fixed. Everything's great. A couple hours after he blew a game. So it's it's also you want to go back and adjust and talk to people and say, all right, this is this still working. What was the issue for him today? And and does everything I've writ- written make sense? And, and um. He didn't pitch all weekend. And so I was still saving it. I wanted to make sure like the, the I wanted to see if he made the all-star game, first of all, because then sure. he makes the all-star game. I adjust the story again. It's like, hey, he's back to his normal self and that earned him a spot in the all-star game. Sure. Let's run this baby on Monday morning. And he's I figured he would probably pitch yesterday. Comes in in a six-two game. And not only does he does he Give it up. And I know he had some help. But some? I had to bail. <laughs> I had to go to the airport and catch my flight. So I missed the ninth inning. So I'm sitting in the airport. And for some reason, my direct TV app wasn't working. I couldn't watch the game. I'm sitting there on game day. <laughs> and just watching this devolve into madness. And watching my article disintegrate. Once again, <laughs> and again, it's it, it's not like like I'm not trying to just time it up every day so that you know it just magically matches what people are talking about. But it's just you want it to make sense. And if this story about yeah. hey he's an all star because he's pitching really well over the last month again comes on the heels of a four run outing, that's just not going to hit right. So I don't know if that article will ever see the the light of day. Oh. You can file it away with the Mike Zanino There's piece still hope. and many others I've written. That There's still hope. Had to go to scraps. <laughs> because the Zanino piece did eventually make it to light. And then that was about it. But hey, it finally made it out there. And you got your six hours of, of it being pertinent. So I, I am going to hold out hope that the Classe article is going to make it out someday. And boy, what a weird outing to try to, I don't know, dissect. Assign how much bl- How many times does a, a reliever give up? The lead like that, give up four runs, and I can make the case that 90% of it wasn't his fault. Not very often. And it also kind of calls into question, I'm glad that we no longer use fielding percentage and errors to determine how well a guy is playing defensively. And two things can be true at once. Josh Naylor can be having a good year defensively, according to the stats, according to the metrics, and he also had one of the most massive brain fart innings that you can have as a defender. The same thing is true of the guy that's catching behind the plate, too. Cam Gallagher has been one of the best defensive catchers in all of baseball this year as a backup, and yet he he just forgot to take a glove out, apparently, to go take part in the ninth inning. I'm glad we had a shared experience. We don't have enough as a society. We don't get to have as many shared experiences, I don't think. And they're so important to bringing us together. That's what sports is. It's a shared experience for us all. 
That's what our Discord is. It's a shared experience for us all. You and I got to have a shared experience and that we both followed the ninth inning via the game day app. Because <laughs> you're at the airport. I am putting my four-year-old daughter to bed. And for her, you put her to, to sleep by reading her a book. And then I have to lay next to her in her room until she finally falls asleep. And so often I'll either have the game up via video, or in this case I'm feeling like it's not that important to watch the video of a, a game in which they're leading 6-2. to two. I'll just pull it up on the game day app and I'll have it next to me and I'll be laying there waiting for her to go to sleep. And, I'm, and I see a walk and I'm thinking, okay, that's not a good way to start this, but whatever. And then I'm seeing past ball, past ball. I'm thinking there is an error within the app. I'm thinking the guy running the game day app at the ballpark has lost their mind. That happened the day before, or two days before. I'm sitting there watching David Fry pitch, and I knew the inning went quick. And I was trying, you know, the, the game day and baseball savant are usually a minute or two behind what's actually happening on the field. And... I'm watching David Fry pitch, and it's like, oh, it's fun. Like he's throwing really slow, and like, let's see what the actual velocity is, because I don't always trust what the scoreboard says. And I wanted to see how Game Day and Savant classified his pitches. So I pull it up, and the scoreboard's showing that he had thrown seven pitches. And I think he had two strikes on the last batter he faced. But Game Day and Savant were showing like it was glitching. It was way behind. And then the inning ends, and they show four pitches. But the scoreboard showed eight. And I was really confused. I'm like, well, I have to go with the technology, right? Like, am I just going to choose this random person behind a scoreboard who, I mean, like, I'm there in person and don't know how many pitches he's thrown. Maybe this person, <laughs> it's the same thing. I like, So I tweet out that he retired the side on four 57 or 53-mile-an-hour sliders. And, of course, it was eight. It wasn't even close, and I'm just waiting for the people to. Aren't you there? You can't count to eight. But again, like it's it's painful sometimes. Just trusting game day. Yeah, trusting technology. It's a it's a warning sign. Can't just give it all away to AI just yet. But that that is literally what's going through my my mind, and I do this so often where I'm just following game day as I'm going about different things, or as I said, putting my daughter to sleep. So I'm very accustomed to how they. Like, what is happening on the field based on the input that they're putting in? Like, in-play runs. I know that there could still be an out within there because you can't still you can't put in-play out runs. There's only so many things they can list until they actually get the input of what takes place. Or in-play out, and there's a runner at third base. I know that there's no run scoring because they'll the out the run will always trump the out. And so there's certain things that I know about how the game day app works within it just by following it enough. And I'm sure many fans out there are the same when they have to, to go about this this way. And I, there are times where there is an input that's wrong. A single will actually be an out or, you know, the, uh, I mean, there is still some human element to this. And so I'm thinking as there's two passed balls, they just their finger just accidentally hit it twice. <laughs> how did the runner get the third base? <laughs> it, it would make sense if Mike Zanino was still behind the plate. And then I would have said, sure, I get it, but it's Cam Gallagher. But wasn't that indicative of just how much this season has been that? Kind of like the bullpen. You look at their stats. Their stats are fantastic. One of the best bullpens in baseball, and yet in some high-leverage spots, be it Trevor Steffen, who I think really is kind of going under the radar here, but really added to that potential loss yesterday by just opening the door whatsoever. You have Emmanuel Classe. You have these meltdowns by guys that are actually good and for the most part give you great numbers, but their meltdowns come at the wrong spot. Josh Naylor has been great at first base this year, but guess when he has his brain farts? Right in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. Cam Gallagher, great behind the plate. Right in the middle of that. All of this shit hitting the fan. Sorry. And... Isn't that just exactly what this Guardian season has been a lot of? Ill-timed yeah. things? Horrendous sequencing. Yes. Yes. Class A had 13 consecutive scoreless outings. And instead of just giving up a run or two last night, he gives up four. And, yeah, I mean, they've they've done that all season. I think that's why... They are so confounding. It's why I will keep saying this. I just filed a story saying it. To me, 
they are as compelling of a team to follow for the next month as there is in the league. Show me a team that plays this many close games. Nobody does. 61.4% of their games have been decided by one or two runs. So there is two-thirds of the time, you're going to be on the edge of your seat in the eighth and ninth inning. So drama, daily, the stakes are there. Every game feels important because the, they have a playoff berth sitting for them on a silver platter if they want it. Their only competition is the Twins, who are severely flawed, just like they are. That's it. You know, it must be nice to be Tampa and get off to that amazing start and look like the juggernaut of all juggernauts, but oh, by the way, you're gonna have to fend off four really other four other really good teams. Or to be in the NL East, you're the Mets, you've spent $350 million. You're the Phillies, you just made the World Series. You're the upstart Marlins who look like they could be a big threat. Oh, sorry, you have to deal with the Braves, who are just insanely good, right? This team has stakes every day, and you see people on Twitter. It feels to me, maybe just because Twitter is weird now and you only see certain things and you see a lot of people you don't follow, but it feels like people are living and dying with every game. That's It can be fun, but that's because you feel like this team should be better than it is because of all the random bullshit, the poor timing, the sequencing that's happened. So there's just, there's daily intrigue. And then you look ahead four weeks to the trade deadline. And you think about this team and the decisions it's going to have to make. And those decisions are based on what this front office, what this organization feel like this team is actually capable of. And when you try to answer that question, how can you? Right? For two months, they couldn't score a run. The last month they have. They've played way better lately. Nine and four in their last 13, 16 and 10 over the last month. They've had some easier competition. Their schedule gets tougher. They also lost Tristan McKenzie and might not get him back. And you're going to have to monitor the rookie pitcher's workloads. So it's just what do you take away from what you've seen the first three months? And how do you project it moving forward? And how does that impact the decisions you make at the trade deadline? They're fascinating. And you think about all the close games and you think about all this bad timing. And of course, this is the day Stefan gives it up. Couldn't give up two runs when he was getting some work in when they were up eight to one, right? Of course, this is the day Classe gives up four. Of course, this is the time Naylor makes this play. Of course, this is the guy, this is the time this guy strikes out with the bases loaded instead of delivers that key hit, right? They've had so much of that. Imagine if they didn't have as much of it. Imagine if a few things, you know, if they were slightly better in one-run games. Not even to the extent they were last year, just just not quite as bad. And they were six, seven games over 500. Be a lot clearer of a picture, I think. Oh, sure. And so it doesn't matter what their record is because the division's so bad. It matters how good do you think this team actually is. Mm-hmm. And if you think that it's just been a lot of coin flips that haven't gone your way, then you don't care about the record because you think the true talent is 48 and 40 instead of 41 and 42 or whatever. And if that's the case, then you're going to make decisions as if you are a legitimate contender. And talking to people, I think they believe they're a better team than their record says. They believe better baseball's ahead. And it's going to make them really interesting to follow over the next month. Well, I think we can expand on that here. But they remain this very frustrating team because even through better play, a good stretch, I think most people would have been pretty okay with a 4-2 and trip. I mean, most 4-2 and trips, you'll absolutely take that, even when part of it is in Kansas City. But the frustration comes because even when they play well, you always feel like they could have been a little bit better. They should have been a little bit better. And this this 
what could have been a loss to end this road trip could have been maybe the, the worst loss of the season. Thank God Josh Naylor came up, delivers the two runs. Also, single. how many times have we said that, though? I know. I know. And as you get closer to the end of the year, every loss does that because you bottleneck it. You know, beginning of the season, it's a huge outcome, a huge funnel with a lot of different outcomes. But as the season goes on, you're left with fewer and fewer outcomes. That's why that happens. That loss in Kansas City really, I think, impacts how we look at this team. And fair or not, it's a reality. Because 5-1 and one feels way different when you take care of that game in Kansas City that's in hand. And hell, even if you just win because Jose steals home plate. And boy, we haven't even talked about that, but how about that play? I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. How do you do that? <laughs> You're asking me? Me? No, I, how do I get to third base is <laughs> what I want to know. Maybe in more ways well, than you one. Well, you were asking that in college, too. Uh, there we go. Hey, we're on the same page again. That, But that loss, it just, because I think of the opponent, be, because of what could have been a 5-1 and one road trip, it's one game difference between 5-1 and one and 4-2, and two, but man, does that feel massive. And because it's in hand. I mean, if you just lose the Kansas City 6-1, to one, all right, well, you shouldn't have lost to Kansas City 6-1, to one, but everybody's going to have an off night. I mean, Kansas, even the worst teams, the 100-loss teams, have to win 62 of the games, right? So it happens throughout the course of a season, but because it's in hand and your best guys are in position and you lose the game and you even have a Superman effort by one of your stars and it goes wasted, you lose the game, that is such a massive punch to wherever you want on your body. Actually, you don't want it. I think it, it plays into how we think about this team. Just imagine how much different you would feel coming off a 5-1 trip. That loss to Kansas City doesn't happen. Would people be much higher on this team than they are right now? How is that possible? A game against Kansas City? How, how could that have that great of an impact? Yet I feel like it does. I mean, it was only a week ago where we were talking about their 5-4 to 10-inning loss to Milwaukee. Remember? They went four and two that week, and it could have been five and one. It was the same conversation. It's, yeah, they, it, I hate to just play the game of like, well, if all these little things went their way, yeah, but they didn't. Okay. But you have to, when you're making decisions at the trade deadline, you're projecting. You can't just assume. The first three months are going to repeat the last three months, right? And if you think back to a year ago, they didn't have the foresight that they were going to cruise to a division title because they stood pat. Part of that was they had so many young players they still wanted to learn about and they didn't want to block them right away. But the reason they didn't want to do that is because they thought that, you know, that hang around, it would be a good experience, but they didn't think that they were going to win the division by 11 games. I don't think they thought they would be playing on October 18th or whatever it was. So you ha you're thinking forward and you're thinking about what the team can be. And when people always say, well, Tito's teams play better in the second half, so they'll be fine. I'm not worried. There's a reason for that. It's because you've figured out your roster and you've solved usually, how to put guys in the best positions to succeed, to benefit your team. And it takes time. You know, how many times do we say at the beginning of the year, like, this roster does not fit, doesn't make sense. And it usually Still fits doesn't. better. Still doesn't. Right. I'm not just talking about this season here in this scenario. Um, But, I mean, like, they started a year with Colin Cowgill in the outfield, right? Like, it's this stuff... They usually solve the puzzle by the summer and things make more sense and they have it figured out. It's not just that they magically flip a switch. It's that they, this is a process. So the question is, what does this team look like? Can it fire on all cylinders in August and September? What does it look like down the stretch? Because I don't care about the division again. If you're good, that's going to take care of itself. But are you good? Can you hang with Tampa, Texas, 
Baltimore, whoever else emerges in the American League, Houston. I don't know. The good thing for them is they have a few more weeks to decide. But there are going to be a lot of decisions to make, whether it's trading Bieber, whether it's trading prospects, addressing the short term, the immediacy in the outfield. It's going to be fun to watch. It also just feels so rare that they're in a position where the decision is made for them. It has happened, but they're usually right kind of where they're at. Somewhere around 500, still within striking distance of the division, never firmly telling everybody, no, this is our division, and yet never being so bad that the decision is made for them. It would certainly be easier for the front office if that were the case this year. And they could turn around and trade Shade Bieber, or the other end of that, they could be targeting that right fielder, that outfielder that they really need. So here's where you earn your money as a front office, when you're in this position, because I think most teams would probably say that they're closer to where Cleveland is at every single year than just having the decision made for them. Now, I we have seen them when it's like 2016. It was clear that this is a good team. The division was clearly, they had, they had a firm hold on it, and they felt like they were that reliever away, or in this case, a reliever and a catcher, but the reliever was the only one that panned out. And a right-handed stick off the bench and versus left-handed pitching. But they felt like they were close. And so they went out and made that move. And we have seen this front office do that. They will make the big move when they feel like they're in a position to do that. Do they feel that about this team? Do they think this team is that it's the result of everything that we've said? Some bad luck, some poor sequencing, some guys just having bad moments at the worst possible time. And is that enough to go on? Can you put your entire trade outlook based just on believing that that's the case. I feel like this front office very often just says, ah, well, we didn't play up to our capabilities. Is that the truth? I would say that that's probably somewhat true, at least for this team, just based on the way that things have happened. But aren't they just, can't they put that aside for a minute and just look at where they believe they're at as a franchise in their ascension let's say maybe that changes how you look about going for a 33 year old rental but does that have to change how they look at a 27 28 year old controllable guy for a couple of seasons based just on the fact that they don't they're not just looking at this for this year they're looking at it for this year and next year potentially and also the fact that You've got 700 middle infield prospects. Maybe you could turn some of the, that into something else. You could be in a position here where it's not just based on what your team has done this year, but also where do you feel like you're at? And does this make you better not just for this year, but for years? I think those trades need to be seriously considered, as they have for, for, for many years by this organization. Yeah, I think they're going to be involved in as many discussions as any other team in the league because they're going to listen on Bieber, Savali, Quantrill, the veteran, non-rookie, non-injured starters. And they're going to look to upgrade the lineup. And those two trade negoti- discussions might intersect. They might not. So there's a lot to sort out there. And I again, like I've not that they would say, you know, I just don't think we're very good. And, and you know, I, I think we've already played our best baseball, but they insist like they think that they're that they can do this. They think that they're better than you would just assume a 41 and 42 team is. And I think I, I do think. I think we're all guilty. I'm certainly guilty of just comparing Oh, this is just like year X. And so they're going to do this. Because I think every case is different. But you have to think, and I know there are some years where they've been super aggressive, right? And even to a surprising point. Surprising point. In 2011, when they traded for Ubaldo Jimenez, who I think was the best starting pitcher on the market then. I mean, that was that was jarring, right? That team was coming off of 
three rotten years. I don't think anyone thought that that was an actual contender at that point. And the well, big part of the move was you knew you'd have him the next two seasons after that. Surprising aggressive move in a season where they were just okay, but they felt that there were brighter days ahead. That sounds a little bit like this, right? 2016. Mm-hmm. They were good. I think everyone believed they were good with that 14-game winning streak. And the Tigers' run was coming to an end. The Royals were not quite the same Royals anymore. Didn't think they didn't know that they were going to go get Andrew Miller. Everyone was focused on Luke Roy, right? And just the idea that they were willing to part with eight prospects for those two guys. Pretty jarring stuff. And again, early in a contention window, still felt like even though they were playing really well, like there were brighter days ahead and it was they were going to be a threat for a couple years. That's sort of where I think they are or where they certainly they think they are, right? More so than like the 2018-2019 where they're not as aggressive as I think people wanted them to be. And they had holes and it was just, they were far into the contention window. Like none of that was new. So I think they tend to lean toward the aggressive side in these certain situations, in this part of the timeline. So I don't know exactly what they're going to do because they're still sorting it out. They're trying to figure out what their ceiling is, what that means. I mean, the Bieber thing is a huge question here. And it's not just a huge question of whether you trade him or not. It's what you want to get for him if you do trade him. Because you might just be able to address the certain things on your major league roster that help you now. And so that affects who you're talking to about him. So it's it's going to be interesting. But again, I think they're going to have to use the next few weeks to confirm their suspicions that this team can be formidable and has a bright outlook the next few years too. Which I think that part we believe. It's just, what are you missing? What do you need to shore up? Right. Certainly the offense, but not only but that, what specifically, but what parts of your roster can't be shored up by guys that are in the minor leagues. They, they didn't go out and target a pitcher because they believed in the guys that they had coming up and they looked pretty smart for that. And they didn't trade away any of these guys. And again, whether or not you would love to have a Sean Murphy in the middle of this lineup, it was probably going to take at least one, if not multiple of these starters to get that done. If you feel like you are, as they say, a good team that has underperformed, then you need to be aggressive. I don't think there's any reason not to be. We, I think there's another thing you can take away from 2011 and that trade with Ubaldo. Yes, it was about controlling him for multiple years. But I also, this is kind of going back to what I felt about Clevenger, that they say that they, they, they didn't have any warning signs. There were no red flags. We didn't feel pressure to trade him in that very moment because we felt like he was a ticking time bomb. I don't believe that, at least not to some extent. I think they did think that he was a, at least there was some risk there that they wanted to push that before the risk exploded in their face. And I wonder that about 2011 too. They looked at two pitching prospects that maybe internally they had some big concerns about and they thought, let's trade them now while we can still get somebody that we believe could be a front-of-the-rotation starter for multiple years, let's move them before someone realizes there's warning signs here. There's injury risk. There's whatever. And they proved to be right. I mean, Pomeranz has had an okay career, but it's certainly not as a big, long starter. It's mostly been as a reliever and closer. and So... I think that decision to move those prospects, it, it paid off for them. So what what about this team? You look at the minor leagues. Is, are there guys that they believe internally that they have some questions about? Shouldn't you be aggressive and maybe moving them instead of letting them come to the major league level? Prove that, that your concerns were warranted and now you've lost any opportunity to turn them into something that can make a difference? Has that already happened with Gabby Arias and Tyler Freeman to a certain extent? Maybe even George Valera or Brian Rocchio. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. These prospects, as people get more of a look at them, as they increase their levels, 
all the, the, the could be's and might be's start to disappear and you start to get a picture of what they actually are. But the other thing with these young prospects, can I just say one thing? Because we're just going to continue to harp on the Gio Urshela's and I'm not doing, going down the list. Mm. I am so happy again to see Benson having success and Nolan Jones has had some success. I really like it's it's frustrating in that you could have used that at least to this point with the, the, the contributions that they've given. But really, that doesn't bug me. Owen Miller going somewhere having success doesn't bug me. It's when I see the same things happening to guys that are currently on the roster and everyone's upset about Gabriel Arias and everything that he does. I just feel like that's the next guy to, to go elsewhere, and it's going to have some success, and people are going to say, why didn't Gabriel Arias get any run in Cleveland? Why did that not happen? Like, I just feel like it's setting up. To me, the frustrating thing is not letting those guys go elsewhere. It's that I see it happening right now with guys that are currently on the team, and I don't want that to happen with Tyler Freeman or Arias or the next guy that comes up. Well... You're going to have an open shortstop competition in seven months. So someone's going to get an opportunity. And there needs to be a backup in place, right? Because these guys are all going to be question marks still. So there's a chance for some. I mean, I, I, I don't know... This is we. I don't want to keep beating this into the ground with Ahmed Rosario, and I don't know. I don't know why they just don't want to learn more about these guys and give them opportunities. And for a team that has been so aggressive and trusting of its young starting pitching, the way they've handled the position players is stupefying, and it's. I mean, I, this is coming from someone who asks about it constantly, and I'm still puzzled. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, they're obsessed with threading needles and playing short term and long term <laughs> and developing while contending, and yet they throw all of that by the wayside when it comes to the middle infield equation. Can I also say one other thing? You're going to let me because I could just mute you. I saw our guy Hiram, and thanks Hiram for listening to our shows. We do appreciate it. Um, Hiram has has been tweeting about things. Huge that we're Hiram saying, fan here, by the way. Uh, that we've been saying on the show, and I appreciate you listening, Hiram, and and putting that out there. And he said something that was like the latest show they were ripping Tito about player development. I, I do want to say, I don't think that this is solely a Tito problem. I think that gets floated out there a lot. There is a Maybe misconception is the wrong way to phrase it, but I think there's an improper weight in what people think Tito has an ability to do or or even wants to do as the manager. If the front office wants something to happen, as in they really want a younger player to play, if they tell Tito that, he's not just going to say, nah, I'm the manager. When they say collaborative thing, they really do mean it's a collaborative thing. And I think... That should work in a positive way. When things are going well, it should be in a collaboration and everybody should get the credit. But when a younger player is not getting an opportunity or guys aren't developing enough, that's not also just a Tito thing. That's an entire organizational thing, and you'll take the blame as an organization because it's a collaborative thing. If somebody tells Tito and puts weight on it, and he has shown this, I'm not just saying this, he has shown this in that a bullpen coach tells you, hey, I really think... Carlos Carrasco should be starting a game here. He will take that and not just say, no, no, I've seen enough of that. He will listen to that. and He will listen to the front office. He will take all of these things in. Now, sometimes that still means they make the wrong decision. But if somebody in that front office was really knocking down the door and saying, you got to stop playing Ahmed, you've got to play this younger player, and here's the reasons why, I think Tito would listen to that. I really think the front office has a lot, a, a lot of, of weight here in the decision-making on who plays. And I, th I think some of that gets lost, and they think it's only the Tito show. I really don't think that's the case. In many instances, if you're blaming Terry Francona or Chris Antonetti for something, you probably need to blame the other as well. Everything they do is collaborative. The only thing that isn't is like, 
hey, it's the eighth inning. This guy's coming up. Let's bring in this reliever. Like Antonetti's not pulling a Ray Farmer and texting from his suite <laughs> what they need to do. But yeah, I mean, it, it's in player development. Let's. This is the thing. How many times do you see a young starting pitcher? I mean, Gavin Williams comes up in his first two starts. He gave up a hit in two innings out of 12, 13, right? Like, how many times have we said a, a young starting pitcher comes up and just looks like they belong? It looks like the transition is seamless. We say that all the time. How many times do we say that about a hitter? That, to me, is more to do with player development and preparation and learning how to extract as much potential as possible out of a hitter, which I don't think they've mastered yet. And I think it's sort of the chicken and the egg here where, and I don't know this, because again, they collaborate on this. They talk, like, you think that Chris Antonetti is like pounding on Terry Francona's door saying, stop playing Miles Straw every day. And Francona just has like ACDC blasting and pretending he can't hear Antonetti <laughs> banging on the door. Give him two Austin fingers. That's not, <laughs> that's not. Actually, I've tried to learn what Terry Francona listens to, and I, I don't know if ACDC is. I think his he said his first concert ever was Manfred Mann. So we'll go Manfred Mann. Um, what's their song? Blinded by the Light. So he's got blinded by the light blasting and you can't hear Antonetti. Um, no, they do everything in lockstep. That doesn't mean they agree on everything, but it's not... If you're blaming one side, you probably need to blame everybody. And it's just interesting how the pitchers, it's, it really is a pipeline. Guys come up, they look the part, they keep pitching, they go through rough patches, but... It's pretty simple process in terms of figuring it out and, and moving forward as part of the big league rotation. And on the position player side, it's just, it's a complete mess. And there's no easy, and I know some of it is defensive positioning and, you know, you only have certain guys can play certain spots. So you have to fit into a perfect role, but it's not, they have not figured out how to transition guys properly and break them in and, you know, it takes someone like Quan going nuclear and not having other contenders for corner outfield spots to really like establish yourself. Or it takes Jimenez. I mean, Jimenez did the same thing last year, right? And it's a good thing he did that when he did, because otherwise he might have had Arias vying for playing time or Freeman. So I don't know. It's we're we're gonna get to spring training next. I mean, unless something changes the next couple months, and maybe they make a trade, maybe. Rosario gets hurt and someone else steps up, but otherwise you're going to get to spring training next year and it's going to be like, all right, Freeman and Rocchio and Arias fight to the death. And Juan Brito maybe too is like breathing down their necks at that point. And, you know, and then what? And then Arias wins the opening day spot and he struggles in April and you go to Freeman and then is Arias just done for his career and he goes somewhere else? Like I it just doesn't seem ideal. I think this criticism goes multiple ways, too, by the way, because I'm saying if the front office really wants this young middle infielder or really wants a different center fielder or something, it's up to them to go put the foot down and say that this is really what I want. And I think that applies to Tito, too. You know, you had suggested that you had gotten some inklings that he really wanted Bo Naylor up here way before he actually got up here and Maybe the front office is saying, hey, no, let's let's stick with the Zanino thing. We think that he's going to turn things around. And I think the criticism is you can reverse this and say, no, Tito needed to put his foot down and say, damn, guys, I want Naylor up here and I'm I'm throwing in my best friend card here. <laughs> I really you got to you got to do this for me. You got to do it. And, and I think that goes both ways within a collaboration. And that's why I'm saying everybody should share the blame because we don't know. Like we, we have an assumption that it's always the veteran guys, the Tito backs, and it's always the smart thing that the front office is doing. And I don't think that's fair. I think the front office makes mistakes. I think Tito makes mistakes. And I don't I don't believe it's just the one thing or the other. You, if you truly believe something, then you need to go in there in that room when they're collaborating after every ga after every game 
you need to say, no, this is what I want. This is why we need to do this. And you need to put your weight on that thing. And that's where I will criticize within this whole collaboration is that if something is happening that you truly don't believe in, then you need to make it happen within that room. Sure. Does that make sense? I'd say something Tito did that kind of shows why he's good at what he does. Because I think we lose sight of that. And I think I'm so tired of the whole debate of this guy sucks and he needs to retire and he's been terrible this year. And then the other side says, he's a Hall of Fame manager. You can't criticize him. And it's just like, there's never any nuance. There's no gray area. There's no civil discourse. It's just become exhausting. Um, Because I think, Again, as we always say on this podcast, which is probably boring for Twitter, sports talk, radio, <laughs> the truth lies in the middle or sure. multiple things can be true at once, right? right. So even, here's even just, our criticism, we lose. Can't, even our criticism of Tito, when it's warranted, doesn't mean fire the guy. N- no, right. no, we can criticize him while also maintaining that he's still one of baseball's better managers. Couple other things. We get caught in our bubble. Guess what? Why do they... They should not have pitched to Naylor in the 10th inning last night. First base was open. And they did. That's the second time we've seen, at least I can remember, we've seen a manager pitch to someone they shouldn't have pitched to in extra innings with first base open. And so it's a reminder that other fan bases hate their manager too and think every decision they make is wrong. And another thing, it's not just Cleveland where they put the tarp on the field when it's sunny or they make terrible decisions and make you wait eight hours for a game to get it in when there are four mutual off days in the future. So we get trapped in our bubbles, but I think some of the things that frustrate us happen everywhere. (laughs) They really do. Uh, The grass is always greener, or in this case, the tarp is always less wet. I don't know. Yeah. So they had two all-stars, Jose Ramirez, Manuel Classe, Josh Naylor, not an all-star at this point. Call it a snub if you want. Um, he's he's yeah. having a great season. We talked about this last week. We went over his numbers compared to the other American League first baseman and draw whatever conclusion you want. Look, Naylor said that he didn't think he was going to make it. Um, I think his teammates would disagree with that. I think his coaching staff would disagree with that. And that's why, instead of last year, when they did this whole thing in front of the team and they said, Jose Ramirez is an all-star, Manuel Classe is an all-star, and everyone claps, and that's the end of the meeting. And then Terry Francona turns around and says, oh, wait, there's one more, Andre Semenez, and the room erupts. Did a little different this year. Sunday morning, well, afternoon, Everybody's in the clubhouse. Can't go out on the field. It's pouring rain. Don't want to go in the dugout. The rain's blowing sideways into the dugout. Everybody's indoors. Not much going on. Guys are playing cards. Playing chess. Perfect opportunity to have a team meeting. Rally the troops a little bit. Get excited. Hey, we have two all-stars. Francona didn't want the tenor of the meeting to be about Naylor not making it. And he knew Class A and Ramirez are not rookies. They're not making their first All-Star game. It's not going to be the biggest deal in the world to them. So he called the two of them into his office, congratulated them. Pretty simple, straightforward. They go on their way, calls Naylor in, says, look, we think you're an All-Star. You didn't make it. That doesn't change how we think about you. Doesn't change, shouldn't change how you think about how you've performed. It's just the way it is. Naylor took it well, and that's that. Didn't make too big of a deal out of it. We spend so much time painstakingly nitpicking, and it's fine. It's justifiable. I'm not saying we shouldn't do this. It's part of sports. But we spend so much time on that. I think this stuff behind the scenes, we don't spend any time on But the way a good manager manages personalities, egos, understands the right levers to pull with people, human beings, I think that's what Terry Francona has done so well throughout his career. 
Mm -hmm. And it was just another example. I feel like we don't we don't get to see a lot of it. So this is one instance that I can at least share. Well, I think there's criticisms of him slipping from a strategic standpoint here in recent years, or maybe even specifically this year. And there has been some absolutely head-scratching things that have come out of the manager's office. That said, he is, whether or not you believe he's slipping from a, a tactical standpoint, he has certainly not slipped from a relating to people standpoint. And, and, and getting the most out of somebody in the pregame aspect, making sure that nobody is in the, the wrong headspace and always m making sure that the right things are relayed, the communication. Have there been times where things have slipped through the cracks? I'm sure there have been. We think we've seen them, and there are probably many, many things that Tito kicks himself for not doing better. But, I mean, you see that. You see him take Bybee aside after he takes him out in the sixth inning, and it, not only on the mound. I mean, a lot of managers might say that on the mound, and then that's over. If it takes him aside as Carl Willis talks to him, Tito talks to him. And so there's no miscommunication there in that. I mean, do you, does Bybee really think that the team doesn't trust him in that situation? I, he's a smart kid. I'm sure he realizes what's happening there. But he makes sure that there's no misconception there. I'm glad you brought that up. Because Bybee's big thing is every start, six innings. Got to go six innings. Got to go six innings. And he went five and two-thirds. And he wanted to stay out there for that last one. And a week earlier, they let him. And he got up to the 100-pitch mark, and he really had to dig down deep and, and claw his way to six innings. And when Francona pulled him, he said to him, look, this has nothing to do with your performance, but you're going to pitch on regular rest this week. And they've afforded him, you know, most of the time it's been six days because they've always had an off day, and they've... You know, they've made sure that they're giving these rookies a day or two to breathe when they can. So he give he gave him that message immediately just to to assure him, look, we believe in you. We're gonna believe in you again five days from now. And that's why we don't want to push you too hard today. I mean, it's part of the reason why Logan Allen is not in the major leagues right now. Now some of it is I, I think they want him to focus more on maybe attacking and maybe getting a little bit sharper so that he doesn't have 30 foul balls ruin an outing or anything like that. He's not getting deep in games, so that's problematic. You don't want to tax the bullpen every five days. But still, overall, what do you have, a three-and-a-half ERA? How many young rookie pitchers are you sending to the minor leagues for any team that has a three-and-a-half ERA that still looks promising, and even though he's not getting deep in games, he's not giving up a ton of runs? How many of those guys get shipped to the minor leagues? But I'm sure through that, there's a communication there. And there's... Yeah, we talked about that, that being a likelihood that somebody was going to lose their spot, not even performance-based. You're going to have to do that. You're relying on what for now has been a pretty healthy part of the season. Multiple rookies, now three rookies in the rotation. And in some cases, more because they've rotated other younger pitchers up here. But the guys that you believe in, Allen, Bybee, Williams, you got to be delicate in how you're doing this because it's not just about making it through September. This team still has an eye toward winning the division. And with no Tristan, and who knows, maybe no Shane Bieber when they get to the end of the year, if this team makes the playoffs, if they're going to do anything whatsoever, Williams, Bybee, and Logan Allen have got to be part of it. They have to be. And so I, 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 I laugh because people that don't follow this closely just see that they sent Logan Allen to the minor leagues and they look at the numbers and they think, Really? Like, I, I think even uh, MLB Trade Rumors, their their headline was just like, starter with three point whatever ERA to the minors, <laughs> like dot, 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 suggesting what the hell. But it's strategic. It, I, I, I knew this was coming. You knew it was coming. Fans knew it was coming. And I think more than likely, one of the rookie pitchers knew that it was coming. And it, he's the one that I think is screaming the most that manage the workload a little bit and then come back here and he's going to be right back into this rotation soon enough. Yeah, they're they all need they're all gonna get a breather at some point. And this was the perfect time for his because yeah, his last two starts were both scoreless, I think. But he only lasted like seven and two thirds innings combined, right? I don't know that I've ever seen a pitcher throw ninety-eight pitches to get through seventeen hitters. That's not all his fault, but um it was just the the right time for him 
to get his little mini break. And it's not, you know, he's not going to Cancun for two weeks. He's still going to pitch in Columbus, but they're going to limit him there and just let him kind of take his foot off the gas a little bit and also look at, you know, what he can do, what he can refine so that he doesn't come back up and labor through the innings. Because the other thing, too, is people have asked, it's like, is, is innings the best way to to limit them? You know, if you just say, okay, they can't throw past 150 or 160. Um, because Allen's a perfect example. Well, only seven and two-thirds innings his last two starts, so that that buys him some more time down the line. But it's the intensity of the innings. It's, it is the workload itself. And those two starts, they didn't last very long, but man, that's a lot of stressful pitches because mm-hmm. it's just so much traffic and so many battles. So it's the right time for him. I'm sure, you know, I, I don't know how this is going to play out exactly because they're not setting a hard cap. You know, it depends how they get to those numbers, but, you know, I would think Bybee would get a somewhat of a breather at some point. You know, Gavin Williams has a smaller innings total in his career than those two guys, so we're going to have to be super careful with him, too. So it's just Logan Allen's first. I think some might look at that and say, well, what if you just said nobody throws beyond 75, 80 pitches, and you find a way to manage workloads that way? You can do that in the minor leagues, sure. But there's a downside to that, and I think it's important that you let like Tanner Bybee go out and throw 105 pitches and get through a lineup three and a half, maybe even four times. If you if you put the cap on the pitcher and you never let them face a lineup a third time, let's say, well, how do they ever get better? How do they ever learn that skill and and push their arm if you never let them? I said I don't think it's about just capping a a pitch and saying never pitch them past this that. That does not help the development here. You've got to pitch deep into games so that you learn more about the art of pitching and how you do that with the skill set that you have. And that's why it's important that I believe they have done, they did that with Logan Allen and they're pulling back a little bit. They're going to do that with Bybee. They're going to obviously do that with Williams. So I think that's something to keep in mind. that they're, It's not just about the pitches and it's certainly not just about the innings. As you said, it's about the intensity in which they're, they're throwing. If it's 100 pitches, but it's eight and a third innings and they were just free flowing, nobody on base. That, that is a lot easier. I got to imagine than somebody that had to break in deep into their arsenal and throw tons of breaking stuff to try to get people to stop fouling pitches off. And it's the fifth inning and you threw 95 pitches and you're sweating and it's hot. That is going to take more out of you. It is absolutely going to take more out of you. So that's why you have to, you can't just look at this, as an innings or a pitch, it has to be the entire package, how they got there. And I I trust them to handle this well. And Bobby's a good example, too, because he's very cerebral, and he's always looking for things he can take away and learn and get better at for his next start. All guys do that, but he's he's a thinker. And I think it was important that, that Milwaukee start. He goes over 100 pitches, and it's like, well... These are a few bullets that he won't get to throw down the line, but this, these are impactful. These can really help him. And then deciding on Saturday night, this is probably the right time to pull back a little bit and and save some of those bullets. So it's just you're just managing the situation and picking your spots. And you know, again, this is this is easy if you're 20 games under 500, right? And it's just all right. Hey, just go out there and pitch. And if we have to shut you down in September, who cares? But it's just contending while developing is great. It leads to, you know, it's fun watching these guys grow up in front of your eyes and when they're doing it in meaningful situations. But my God, does it create some (laughs) complications with the roster and just how to deal with and juggle everything you're juggling? I don't think anyone would ever describe anyone on this show as being a thinker. It is what it is. How's Wrigley? They have an elevator, finally. <sighs> Took a while to find it on Friday. <laughs> Still have to go through the mass of the crowd to get down to the clubhouse. It's oh. it's Wrigley. The area around the ballpark is 
like your favorite your old taco bell that you love to frequent across the street is uh it's still there but it's Wait, it's still there by it's, it's it's there but it's surrounded by nice restaurants in the ballpark village and surrounded by taco bell surrounded by nice restaurants you mean it's just a nice restaurant it's part of the nice restaurants i thought they tore down that no. place I thought they were I maybe they maybe like moved it down the street mm. but the canteen is still there interesting nothing beats the the pain on your face as we're all eating taco bell that night and you're just standing in the corner mad <laughs> i don't want to be it took here 45 minutes to get your gordita crunch or whatever <laughs> crap you ate i uh, see that look weekly twice and a it week. was ho- wasn't it halloween yeah so everyone is in costumes and we're just awkwardly standing there in our Button downs and pants and book bags on and ugh. nerds. See everybody later this week. Patreon.com slash Selby's Godcast.